Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the character, and why this film is worth watching and thinking deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Rob. I like the new intro. That was uh, that was pretty classy. You didn't even know that was coming, did you? I just kind of like surprised you with it. I know. You were like, bam, here's a better, more beefy intro. I mean, that, and that's that's what we're going to do. We're going to tell you why you should be thinking deeply about these films. I'm excited about it. And speaking of better and more beefy, we also have John Bolin here. John, what's up, dude? Hello? Hello? Is anyone in there? <laughs> Stennett? Andrew? It's good to be here. It's going to be a fun day. It is going to be a fun day. All right. Well, I just want to get right to it because if you go on my letterbox right now, I have like three people who follow me, but if you go on my letterbox, there's a few movies that you'll see right at the top. And one of my all time favorite movies is Back to the Future. I'm here to brag about it, to defend it, uh, to talk about why I love this movie so much, why I think it's one of the most rewatchable movies ever. And I just want to get into discussion. So are you guys ready for that today? You bet beautiful that was that was a, a less than enthusiastic uh, response from the both of us i know i felt like i was trying to really tee you up to be like yeah let's do this and you're like yeah I, <laughs> I have nothing better to do for the next 10 minutes so fine i mean i mean i guess i'm sitting here rolling on a podcast so maybe uh maybe we talk about back to the future maybe we do it all right well well let's talk about it <laughs> let's do it this is starting off great this is an amazing open this is the best open. best opening ever let's leave the opening and get to how you felt john i want to know how did you feel watching this movie for the first time? Well, watching it for the first time, it was great. What time of year did this movie come out? Do you know? Do you summer. Know summer of 85. Oh, yeah, so this would have been a blockbuster, sure. summer blockbuster. I was 15 or 16 years old, so I was just beginning high school. And this was like the quintessential 1985 summer blockbuster kind of movie. It was rated PG, so I could actually go see it. Nice. They didn't have a 13 rating then, did they, in 1985? They had just when started the... the 13 in 1985, and this okay. cleared. This was yes. PG still. That was back when PG had like a huge margin on it. I can't yes. imagine uh, this movie being PG now. No. So my parents were pretty conservative, so I just slid by with this movie. But there's so many things about this movie that were amazing, watching it for the first time. Of course, it just became part of the culture. It was lunchboxes, and I think McDonald's or Burger King had like a Back to the Future. Remember they had the commemorative collector's item glasses or mugs? Yeah, it's like, get your own McDonald's mug with a DeLorean on it. And for some reason, like, (laughs) I was like, man, I will buy 25 Big Macs so I can have a DeLorean glass. From Back to the Future. (laughs) Yeah, it was was so fun and a little, like, mind-boggling and even a little scandalous for a PG movie in some ways. And it it was a really fun movie to see. It was... I remember it was like everything about my teenage years was sort of back to the future. Yeah, this was such a big deal when it came out. It kind of like grabbed the nation by storm. It was one of those movies that like, you know, like an E.T., like Jurassic Park, like different movies that we've talked about. It was another one of those Spielberg movies that just grabbed everyone's imagination. People went and saw it over and over again. And even though Spielberg didn't direct this movie, it kind of has his fingerprints all over it. It definitely um, does. That opening sequence where it's just like panning from thing to thing to thing and telling a story. It's a big one but it's kind of framed like multiple shots. It's so Spielberg-y. Yeah, and it's like playful. Like you're learning all this information, but it's kind of playful and whimsical. 
Yeah. Shout out. There's a Denver Broncos clock actually like in that whole sequence, which I really love. That means a lot to me. Yeah. And so you learn so much in that sequence. You see the TV, you see the camcorder, you see, oh, he's got a dog. You see he's doing experiments. And so, but it has this kind of like, oh, it's set in reality, but in set in like Spielberg reality to it. Right. Like you said, it's like a fun, whimsical reality. And just to geek out about the opening sequence, the amount of like storytelling they do with zero dialogue and all of the questions that you're asking of like, why is this guy not here? Like, you know that the doctor is absent without or the whoever owns this place. You don't know who owns it. Like, you know that they're smart and clearly an inventor, but you know that they haven't been here in a really long time because of the buildup of dog food. You know that they're like a little weird. Like, you know so much about Doc without ever seeing him from just that opening shot. It's really, really smart. Well, and even what's so interesting is there's this kind of weird set piece that it opens up with, with Marty, like, turning on every single amp, and then, like, he blows it out, and then it just kind of knocks him back, and that's it. They kind of set that gag up for, like, 30 seconds, and then it happens. And you could think, like, oh, that's just a fun gag, but I actually think it's important to the storytelling because it's showing, like, hey, this is kind of a rich doctor who or doc quote unquote who has all right. this fun stuff and marty gets to come and like oh just play with the he, toys uh, and that's why he, comes. he unlocks the door has the key to get in so that says a lot about their relationship right they're just friends and he's just like oh yeah you can like play with the guitar and play with the amps and it's just like oh this is a cool place to hang after school a fun place to hang after school isn't it a little creepy like there's the high school kid going to the the mad scientist's lab you know i mean that's not normal is it I mean, maybe I, maybe you both had a mad scientist buddy that you hung out with after school, but that wasn't normal. What's so strange is it's 0% normal, but I never thought about that. I mean, I've watched this movie a right. hundred times and I never thought like, oh, why are they friends? What's going on there? I just like, they're friends. Like the same reason Han Solo and Chewbacca are friends. It's like, I don't know right. why he's friends with the Wookiee. He just is. And that's what matters. It's only like in the last five years that like Rick and Morty and different things have come out. Where yeah. It's like, wait a minute. Why are these guys friends? Like, what's going on here? Red John Mulaney has an incredible bit where he's like, yeah, he's friends with a disgraced nuclear physicist because of course he is. <laughs> and I think for me, like, that's what this movie does so well. Like even the whole first act was so incredible. And the reason I love this movie and I'm I'm the one who like threw it out there. I was like, fellas. We need to talk about Back to the Future. Every movie podcast, this is probably on the holy grail of one that every movie podcast covers. But for me personally, I'm like, I adore this movie. And as a screenwriter and as a storyteller, part of the reason I adore this movie is every single thing that happens in the first act is a setup to what's going to be paid off later in the movie. But it doesn't feel like a setup. When he's riding on the back of cars on the way to school, it doesn't feel like, oh, that's a setup for later on. And even his family scene, right, is a setup for like what his parents are going to become. They're giving plot details away of like, hey, Marty, you need to go back and look at the enchantment under the sea dance. Look at the, you know, this is how dad met mom. They're setting up details in the whole first act. But it's done so well that it just plays. Yeah, well, each scene has an inherent conflict in it. So you feel like you're in a story not receiving exposition because, yep. I mean, even like when he's like going to school, like he's late for class and is like trying not to get caught. So like even in all these moments or like when they're introducing the clock tower, like he's trying to, you know, take the next step with his girlfriend. Right. It's like this scene where he's like falling in love, but they're actually giving you all this exposition. So each scene is, is constructed with sort of an arc or a conflict in it so that you are writing it as opposed to just like listening to the information that they're spoon feeding you. I wanted to ask about like the skateboarding thing because I wasn't alive when this movie first came out. Shocker. Uh, It came out in 85, right? 
Correct. Yeah, they so say I that was, 25 times in the movie. 1985. 1985. But I'm curious because I know when I saw this, the very first thing I wanted to do was jump on a skateboard and grab onto a car and drive around. Was there like an epidemic of people doing that and getting hurt in the United States? Because that's like wildly unsafe, but it seems like so much fun. I, I imagine everyone was just doing that after this. I'm sure someone's going to fact check me and say something about it. But like to me, this is the movie that invented skateboarding. Or maybe not invented, that's too grandiose, but popularized it, made it. Like, we all wanted to be a Tony Hawk. Like, Marty McFly, I can't say this any more clearly, he was the coolest movie character of the 80s. It's probably like Marty McFly, Ferris Bueller. Like, that is the list of, like, cool high school kids in the 80s. And everyone wanted to be skateboarding. And so it was like, on the back of cars and half pipes, I want to be doing ollies, I want to jump all around. It made it such a thing. Do you think that's true, John? You know, I I know that after this movie, skateboarding was a lot more popular than before. Certainly kids were skateboarding before the movie, but this movie was a, it it started something. Like my my own daughter, who is obviously not born in the 80s, she was born in the 2000 and whatever. She's 20, she's 19 now. She, after watching this movie with her friend, we literally, she got in trouble for skateboarding behind the car Right. In our neighborhood. Like, Absolutely. So, so it, if it works in 2022, how much more would that have happened in 1985? That would be an interesting little Googling to, to do there on skateboarding accidents. I mean, I think I of, saw this for the first time when yeah. I was like 12. And so that must have been like, you know, uh, mid or like 2002 or something. Right. But yeah, that was that was my takeaway from the movie was how cool would it be to grab onto the back of a car and skateboard? Like that's it looks like so much fun. <laughs> Do you guys want to hear why I want to do this movie and why I want to talk about it and why I think it's more than just skateboarding and fun, cool stuff and Pizza Hut cups and that sort of thing? Oh, for sure. I mean, for you, why is this like a meaning of the movie movie? Because it's just a load of good fun. But like, what's what's the meaning of this movie for you? This movie is incredibly fun. It's such a great rewatchable. The score is amazing. The storytelling is amazing. But I think there are two ideas that are central to it that are part of the human experience that no movie before or since have nailed. Idea number one is the world totally changes every 30 years. From 1920 to 1950, the world dramatically changes, right? Like it's like that's post-World War II, all that sort of stuff. From 1950 to 1980, the world again totally changes. Even from 1980 to 2010, all of a sudden by that time we have iPhones and social media and all sorts of different things and the internet and the world has changed. And so every 30 years, the world changes completely. What this movie gets so right is for a parent, they look back 30 years ago and say, that's when the world was perfect. Like if you were a parent in the 80s, you look at the 50s and you say, that's when the world was perfect. Or now if you're a parent today, you look at the world in the 80s or 90s and you're like, oh, things were so much better then. And so it gets this nostalgia really, really right from the parents' perspective of like, oh, it was so great. But then what you get to experience is Marty McFly going back into that world, and it doesn't really make sense. So you get the parents' nostalgia, and then for a student or like a high school student going in and trying to explore the way the world works, and it's like, oh, everything's a little worse. Like there's no Pepsi free, there's no TV, there's no reruns, there's no, all the stuff that Marty loves about the world are not there. And so you get both the like nostalgia and then you get Marty's trying to navigate it. And I think that's what's so interesting. So that's idea number one. And so idea number two is your parents are human. And that's what this movie really is rooted in. The fact that you think your parents have 
lived this life. You see them in their, you know, 40s or 50s. They're kind of miserable. Life has beat them up. And you kind of always think they were this way. But then when Marty gets to go back and see that his dad was in high school, when Marty gets to go back and see that his mom was in high school, he gets to see their humanity and gets to see like, oh, even though the world they live in was very different, their humanity is very much the same. They're still dealing with bullies. They still have raging hormones. They still have hopes and dreams and fears. They have all those things that happen for every high school student. And that humanity that we all have actually live inside of our parents. Yeah. And they're not these kind of dead 40-year-olds that we see. They're living 18-year-olds that he can recognize and understand. Right. That's fascinating. I fully felt that this time around with the humanizing the parents and this idea of like being a buddy with your dad or like having wisdom that your young dad might not have had. It puts him in a whole new thing versus this kind of like mentor that's up on a shelf, not a full fleshed out human being, which I think is often how we look at our parents. So for me, I I watched the movie maybe for the first time with intention since 1985. And in 1985, I watched the movie as Marty McFly. And I thought to myself, I can understand my dad in a way that I couldn't before. I saw my dad as human. And when I watched it this time, (laughs) I'm the dad. And I, (laughs) I, yeah, I was the dad. And I all of a sudden see my boys and my daughters through a different lens. And it lets me see myself in a different lens and the importance of like these small choices that we make and these small decisions and the whole idea of destiny and what that means and, and, and making the most of every moment and not just letting life go by. So for me as a, as a teenager, I remember watching this thinking, Oh yeah, my mom and dad are human. I, I remember that very vividly. And there's been a few movies that have done that really well. But then now watching it as a dad, I saw it through a different lens. You know, I was Marty in my first viewing of Back to the Future, and I was very clearly George in in this viewing. So interesting. I would I would love to just take a, a moment. And uh, John, you said this is the first time that you've watched this movie intentionally um, since uh, 1985. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but uh, didn't you just watch this uh, on an iPhone? Okay, so I, I've watched it, put it this way. It's been <laughs> on in the house because it's Back to the Future. So all my kids must watch it as a rite of passage or they can't graduate from high school. So oh, fascinating. Um, no, not really, but they have to watch it. So, so, so I've watched it, but, but not like sitting down and thinking about what I feel about the movie and what I yeah. think about the movie. I just watched it over the past 20 years, 30 years, really just as a, oh, this is a great movie. It's a classic. You've got to watch it. It'll make a lot of other cultural references make sense to you. And it matters in our in right because this movie can just wash over you, right? Like you can just kind of put it on in the background and do the dishes. That's right. It's got Absolutely. the music. It's got so many it, good it, gags. It it's got way. Huey Lewis songs. It's got the incredible score. It's just like a fun hang. But I think that humanity, like like you said, John, other movies have tried to do the like, hey, our parents are human too, and they have feelings. But like to actually be the same age as your parents to see what your dad's looking like and like, oh, what would that have felt like to see my dad getting picked on and beat up? And like, no, dad, there's something better. Like what's so incredible is Marty has to parent his parents. He's doing it all the way through the movie. He's giving his dad advice. He's giving Lorraine advice. He's kind of like acting like the parent to his own parents. And then it's re- right. it makes him realize like, oh, that's actually what it means to be a parent. Do you guys have a most meaningful scene? Like with this in mind, is there a scene that really like jumps out to you? I mean, I, I think there are 
so many great scenes. For me, I feel like the most meaningful scene is right when they're all in the diner. George is trying to ask Lorraine to the dance, and then Biff comes in and Marty punches him in the face and it all goes wrong. That is the moment where I think the adventure that Marty is on with him just trying to get his parents back together, he's under the mindset that all he has to do is like drop them in the same place, right? As long as his dad asks her to the dance, it'll work, right? That they're like, they just have to check this box and then everything will turn out okay. And it's in that moment that he realizes, like, oh, in order for my parents to get together, my dad needs to be someone else. My dad needs to, like, be a stronger person. He needs to stand up for himself. And um, it is kind of the one moment that humanizes Lorraine a little bit. I think she's a pretty problematic character throughout in the way that they characterize her. But the idea that she wants a man who will stand up for himself and her um, is first seen in that scene is that's kind of one of the reasons she's drawn towards Marty and not George is because of that strength. Well, it's such an important scene because what Marty realizes is my mom and dad's marriage was founded on something horrible, to be honest. Like his dad is literally a peeping Tom is Marty's words in the movie. Like right. he's, you know, <laughs> looking at Lorraine change and then he gets hit by a car. And that that kind of empathy is what makes them fall in love or at least makes her feel sorry for him and they end up getting married. And it's such a bad thing to base a marriage on. And you see the fruit of that in 1985 when they're eating peanut brittle and can barely hold a conversation and she's an alcoholic. And you see like, oh, this is a very dysfunctional family. And so he thinks like, oh, because he's a guy and she's a girl, they'll just fall in love. But then again, realizing that, oh, my mom is a human being. She's like, no girl is ever going to like a guy like that. Like who my dad is is not worth loving. Who my dad is, is not strong enough to get a girl like Lorraine. And as he realizes that, that's such a critical part to what the movie is. I think it's so fascinating in that opening scene, we're talking about all the information that they give when Lorraine, like older Lorraine, is talking about like the dance and how they kissed. And she says like, and then he kissed me and I knew I would spend the rest of my life with him. She's telling the story so romantically. And then when she says that line, it's actually this pretty like, fun little acting job she does it shifts and it's almost this regret of somehow she knew at that point she was on this path to being stuck with this person not that like she wants to be with him almost it's this really interesting like line delivery on that last line and after she gives that line he just the george mcfly uh, 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 i can't even do it they're like cackle george mcfly cackle at the thing and so you realize like she realizes like oh no i ended up with this man and yeah. this is horrible rob you have thought about this movie a lot, bro. <laughs> I mean, what you just talked through, like that's layers of movie philosophy and thinking about this film. Yeah. Well, I think on the surface, this film is really weird. Like a lot of comedians have been making jokes about it recently. Like there's a lot of weird that we could dive into here. But I think it is this heart that Rob is talking about that somehow you gloss over. No doubt. You're right. All about of that. All of the weird stuff because it's connected to something different, despite, you know, him being best friends with a disgraced nuclear physicist. And, and I think aren't those the best movies, the movies that that are there's so much more going on in the subtext that's that's really powerful. And that's and, and when you wrap it in a really fun, goofy uh, sci fi package, you you just laugh your way through it, but you can't help yourself sort of getting that deeper meaning is getting sure. in there, whether you know it or not. And it, it sort of like processes and sticks with you. And I think that's when you say, 
this movie has staying power. And it's because of all the elements. Obviously, great directing, great writing, phenomenal performances. I mean, life-changing performances, but then also a meaning in the film that goes deeper than surface level. So, Rob, for you, though, what was your most meaningful scene? So my most meaningful scene is actually the most problematic scene in the film. Oh, boy. This one, Marty and Lorraine are in the car together, and she's wearing the jacket, and then Mm -hmm. she takes off her jacket, and it's very, you know, revealing or flattering. A lot of of cleavage in that scene. A lot of cleavage factor. And so it's there, and I think that scene is so important because a couple things. One— one big criticism of this movie is that it's an Oedipal movie and that Marty is in love with his mom and Marty wants to hook up with his mom and it's like this sort of Oedipal fantasy. And I think that is totally a false reading of the movie. I think that is not in this at all. In fact, Michael J. Fox's performance is so great in there because he's frightened kind of by his mom's sexuality. He's frightened by like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting here with her. And then I think it's this moment where he realizes like, oh, my mom is a woman too. My mom is actually, but he's not drawn to it. It's just like, oh, I don't want to think about my mom that way. Like this is probably TMI, but if you've ever like, oh, when you realize one day you're like, oh, my parents had sex and because they had sex, that's how I was born. Like it's like this TMI sort of thing. That's the TMI. I think that Marty's going through of like, oh my gosh, my mom is this person. But what makes this scene to me so powerful is that she's doing all this stuff that shows that she's a teenager. She's like, I've parked in a car with a boy, even though she lectured him earlier that she would never park in a car with a boy. For sure. And then she's drinking and he's like, oh my gosh, my mom is the saint and she's drinking here in a flask. And there's even the line where he's like, oh my gosh, you smoke too? And she's like, Marty, you're beginning to sound a lot like my mother. And so where he's realizing all these things about her and that relationship is flip-flopped, I think that's what this whole movie is about. And it's such a fascinating, interesting, like, like you said, weird, but powerful scene that kind of roots the tension that this whole movie is in. And yeah, that's, that is, that is fascinating, especially the way that like plays out at the end of the movie, because I was thinking about this going through the thing that she adult Lorraine at the beginning of the movie is lecturing the daughter about is basically like, don't go on dates with boys. She's like, I never would have like dated around or anything. And then we see that she's very interested in boys as a teenager. And then the better future, her daughter allegedly has like a bunch of boyfriends. And so that's like the win is that somehow through this change, Lorraine like opened up a little bit and was a little bit less hypocritical as a parent i guess and well, it was like okay with her with her daughter's sexuality well he she's also she's lecturing all her kids right she's like marty right. why would you go with her that jennifer calling a boy i would never call a boy you know jennifer calls her so she's kind of lecturing all of her kids about this yeah and so that's why marty has this idea i don't think it's just her daughter i think it's like oh i'm a hypocrite to all my kids but then what she like the new lorraine realizes like oh Every kid has a journey and they have to go through it. And I'm going to celebrate that versus be afraid of it. And that's the arc that we see in her character. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I feel like it was a little weird at the end where she's like, isn't this supposed to be a special night for you and Jennifer? It was like almost like she was like, hey, son, go get some with that girl tonight. It was a little bit weird. I thought that was like a little strange. <laughs> Did you guys not feel that in that scene? She's like winking at him like, oh, no, like you've, you've got this thing tonight. It's supposed to be special. Nudge, nudge, nudge. Like she knows what's up. Was that not weird to I, you guys? I thought it was like a sweet date. It was like a special date. Like, hey, 
your special date with your special friend, not like Marty, you and Jennifer are going to get freaky freak, you know, like that's not. That's the whole conversation him and Jennifer have on like the park bench earlier is like, I want this truck and like we can hang out and we can like put something in like the bed of the truck. I felt like we were all like everyone was on the same page. Lorraine was not there during that that conversation. Lorraine was not listening to them. Like she was not outside the clock tower like, oh, you and Jennifer Parker, it is on like. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So here's the thing. I love kind of the pushback that you're having, Andrew, because the truth is this movie shouldn't work. There's so many things about this movie that shouldn't work. Mm -hmm. So what are there things that actually don't work in this movie? Are there things that fall apart for you? So I actually think this movie holds together really well, but not to keep harping on Lorraine. Love you, Lorraine. Leah Thompson, you crushed it. But I feel like the character of Lorraine as presented as a high schooler like sets the feminist movement back like 40 years. And here's my issue with her. I feel like she is presented as a teenager as this very particular type of male fantasy trope that we see in a lot of romantic comedies and also in a lot of sci-fi and it's characterized by kind of two different things that play opposite each other. The first is that she is shown in almost every scene as incredibly sexually eager, right? She wants Marty to spend the night. She wants him to stay in her bed. She's playing kind of coy, but she's being very obvious that she wants him sexually, right? And that's not necessarily a problem in and of itself, but she's also characterized simultaneously as being incredibly innocent and incredibly doe-eyed and sweet. And so when you smash those two characteristics together, you get this pretty problematic male fantasy of a woman who is incredibly sexually excited and eager, but also very inexperienced and naive and this sort of, I don't know, virginal archetype so that you don't have to worry about being rejected. You know she wants you, but you also don't have to worry about her being super experienced and intimidating and maybe you're not good enough for her. So it's just this slightly troubling trope that gives the male character all of the power as they sort of enter into first love or their first sexual experience and is pretty diminishing to the female character. I don't know. It was just a little off-putting to me. Were you guys feeling that? Did you sort of notice that? Was there kind of the ick factor for you when you were watching it? Yeah, I I know exactly what you're saying, Andrew, about her. She certainly was not an independent woman. She certainly was not a a woman with a, a, a sort of self-confidence. So I hear you on this point, and I think I think it's a totally valid critique. The way that I always looked at Lorraine is she's kind of these two competing ideas of the 50s, and like a movie like Pleasantville really gets into this, where mm, she, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. she like embodies this innocence of this 50, right? Like she mm-hmm. sees him there, and she's like, isn't he a dreamboat? Like she's just kind of this like cute teeny bopper person. I didn't see that as like... A male fantasy necessarily although i definitely understand what you're saying i just thought like oh she's like our she's the poodle skirt wearing like cute teeny girl who's doing all this but she's also mm-hmm. really like oh i have a crush on boys and for the like plot mechanism to work it's really important that like oh she is hit by the car that's the thing that makes her fall in love with this person and but marty is not She's not hit by the car. Oh, sorry. I messed that up. <laughs> <laughs> Marty is hit That's by the car. That's a whole different movie. <laughs> I know. 
Marty's hit by the car, and that's why she falls in love with him. And then that it's like a magic spell. Like that's kind of what it felt like in the movie. Is yeah. like a magic spell that was cast over her to where she's not promiscuous with anyone else. To be honest, she's not promiscuous with George. She's not promiscuous with Biff. She's not really like into anyone. But she's it's almost like a Shakespearean tale where it's like, oh, the magic fairy dust fell on her and Marty and that ki- hits her right. all the way through until that kiss in the car where the fairy dust or the spell is broken and she's like, oh, that's not there. So I didn't really see her as just a fantasy versus that. You know, and that magic spell idea really is sort of my second issue with Lorraine as a character. And it's a thing that pops up in romantic plot lines all over the place, but particularly in the 80s and 90s. And it's this idea that your guy hero just has to do the one thing right, and then the woman will fall in love with him. So that's characterized in Back to the Future as whoever gets hit by the car, that's the man that she's going to Florence Nightingale over, as Doc Brown says. And so... All you have to do is get hit by a car at this point in time, and it just trips a switch in her brain, and she'll fall in love with you. And it had nothing to do with the the character of the guy or what Lorraine may really want from a a love interest. It's like she's a puzzle box or a, a level in a video game, and you just have to learn how to do all the right things at just the right time, and you'll crack her code. So they even, like, double down on this in the movie in order to reverse the quote like magic spell as you were saying rob all marty has to do is find the bigger better cheat code for george to push which ends up being the car punch so in this whole thing lorraine's choices and her desires they don't really have any effect here it's the male characters doing the right thing at the right time to sort of unlock and win her and it just it feels pretty darn objectifying to her as like a female character it certainly removes any agency from her you know I don't know. It just felt like those two things are sort of the one-two punch that kept drawing my attention as I was watching her throughout the the movie. It felt like she just wasn't as fully fledged of a character as Marty and George were. Now, I hadn't thought of that, Andrew, of the idea of sort of this spell. And now that you say that, I I can totally see that plot device being used it's like a beauty and the beast thing right like this right. is the this is the this is the moment it starts and then boom you say the magic words later and it's undone or like the shrek thing or whatever like there's those movies that have that romantic spell that, and i can i can totally see that i do think part of what's problematic maybe is just is just a characterization of of women in the 50s right even on television when you see the old concert footage of like and you guys are probably like, I don't know, John, what was it like in the 50s? Well, no, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, can us, hear you, I can hear you thinking that. What was it like? Tell yeah. us all about it, Papa John. <laughs> exactly. No. So, but I do think there was kind of the, the, the idea of the screaming girls at the Beatles concert or the screaming girls at the Elvis concert. And, right. And that, and that was kind of in the culture. Now, that doesn't even happen. That doesn't, that's not a thing. I mean, maybe a little bit. I'm thinking of my, of my daughters and are there any, are there any celebrity guys that they're sort of gaga over and there probably are a few, but not to the extent of the 50s. I think it was kind of like the idea of the dreamy dream boat sort of guy was part of the culture. And then maybe maybe that combined with the spell factor is what pushed you over the edge. Maybe. I think yeah. I want to say, Andrew, one, I love that you are taking up the feminist angle on this because I think it's right and valid. But I think the other thing like in defense or maybe even critique of Back to the Future is Lorraine, George and Biff are all just kind of like one note characters, right? Like Biff is just the bully all the time and that's who he is. 
George is kind of the nerd all the time. That's who he is until he turns brave. And then Lorraine is like, they're all kind of like, hey, you have one job and you're doing this. It's like Marty and Doc's story. And they're kind of like plot devices in the midst of Marty and Doc's story, even though they're the people who grow and change. There's not a lot of screen time for them. And so I think like part of the thing, like you're like, she wasn't fleshed out, but I'm like, it's not like George has this really deep whatever scene. He also, his whole thing has changed because Marty comes in with like this big yellow thing on and like blasts his brains out and says, I'm Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan, which is just great. (laughs) And that's, that's what changes George's (laughs) mind. Right. So this is a movie that's very, very simple. And again, it's mostly just a movie of gags that we shouldn't even be talking about in this podcast. (laughs) But what makes it have that depth again is actually Marty's reflection on all these characters. It's like Marty is the important character and everyone else. He's just kind of reflecting on what this world is. Does that make sense? For sure. I mean, it is interesting because like most protagonists like have to arc in some way and largely Marty doesn't arc. He has to accomplish his goal, but he doesn't have like a huge internal change in the way that like George does, right? Like George has to learn to be brave and stand up for himself. He has the biggest arc in the movie. But the subtle arc you're talking about with Marty is really what makes us root for him as he's like learning, even though it's not like like his character hasn't changed hugely from the beginning to the end. It's his parents that change. Right. Right. But his arc is, oh, wow, my dad is a human being. My dad has fears. My dad has insecurities. My dad. And oh, wow, I sound just like my dad. Like his dad is giving him the exact same insecurities that Marty tells Jennifer. And so he's seeing I came from these two flawed human beings and that's who I am. And that's really the depth of this film. Have we talked about the weird, the, some of the mind twistiness that happens here in this movie? Like, so here's a question for you. If Marty hadn't have shown doc that he invented the time machine, would there be a time machine at all? No, I, so I, like a movie doesn't work except that it works. And then it kind of goes in this circular, like, wait, 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 like it's, it, it becomes, so we're saying you're, you're saying that there's a paradox of doc wouldn't have created it. Had Marty not shown him that he had. Yes. So, yes. so cause Marty shows him the diagram that he, he's like, this is what it was and you need plutonium to make it work. And then he does that to make it work, which then takes him to Marty. So it, the, the whole thing collapses in on itself, but it needs itself to work. In a, in a weird way. like See, right? I didn't see that at all because he like had already had the vision that morning of how to do it. It just took him 30 years to figure it out, you know? Like, if, if anything, he should have figured it out faster than 30 years once Marty showed up. Well, that's true, too. So Doc is a complete failure as a person, as a human being. His mansion burns down. That's He's right. had one failed experiment after another. This is so key oh, to that's Doc's right. character. That's right. That's that's part of that opening opening right. montage. Yeah. It's like a newspaper clipping because that mansion that he's in through the whole movie that's burned down. That's why he just has kind of the garage left. And so this is really important that Doc is a failure. But Marty, actually, I don't think the fact that he showed him the flux capacitor is what helped him invent time travel. I think what Marty's point was, was like, Doc, there is something valuable in you and you are going to find success one day. And so when Doc, after he goes back to the future and Doc dances around in the flames and like it worked, that triumph fuels him for the next 30 years. Like that's why I've always read that scene is like Marty's point was not to like teach him anything, but Marty's point was to say, Doc, keep going. And actually the most emotionally 
centered relationship in the movie is Marty and Doc in a way that's like kind of wholesome and meaningful. And he is the surrogate father to Marty. Yeah, that's exactly for right. sure. Speaking of like the time travel element of it, time travel movies to me, every time there's like a time travel movie, I'm like, wow, this is going to be like so many plot holes. And watching this movie, I felt like it was one of the best time travel movies in regards to plot holes that I had ever seen. Uh, Rob, how did you feel about the like time travelness of this compared to like other sci-fi? I, I know you're a big sci-fi guy. This is not a time travel movie. This is the time travel movie. Oh, of course. snap. Throw it down the glove. I'm just saying, this is the movie that every... I mean, even in Avengers Endgame, when they're explaining time travel, they're kind of doing all this thing and saying, oh, it's not Back to the Future time travel. They have to, like, reference this movie because this is ground zero for how we think about time travel. And I think it's because Marty is actually the one going back and he has this agency to change things. And they're they're very much showing how, like, hey, this little thing, any from, like... Hey, I'm going to knock over a pine tree. That changes the name of the mall. He gives his father this like fantasy idea. That's what inspires the book. Every single thing that Marty does actually changes. The thesis statement of this film is when uh, I want to say Lubbock. Is that his name? Like uh, Principal Strickland. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lubbock is his name in Masters of the Universe. Uh, nice. Principal Strickland comes and he's like, no McFly in the history of Valley has ever amounted to anything. And Marty looks at him and says, History is going to change like that's the Mm. thesis statement of the film. And we see that happening all over the place. And again, because it's constructed so well, it's like, oh, this is like this in the first act. Now it's different in the third act. And so that's why I think it's the time travel movie, because it's thought through so well. I also think it does an incredible job of not writing itself into a corner or offering up a lot of plot hole things like, well, if they just do this, then they could fix everything. Because I think that's one of the major issues. As soon as you introduce time travel into any kind of a story, it's like the ultimate undo button, right? It removes most of the stakes from anything because if you can time travel, you can just go back and fix anything. It's like an undo button or redo button. Yeah. But this had so many little details put in that like the plutonium, right? That it's it's actually hard to time travel it's not just you push the button and it goes it feels limited and difficult right and the stakes are raised so high right like he's both trapped in time he cannot get back and he's erasing himself so he has like a double whammy stakes that he's fighting against well i I would agree rob i was just sitting here making a mental list of time travel movies but remember that movie time bandits that was in the 80s i think it was just after Back to the Future. I think it was like right before. It's a Terry Gilliam okay. film. Yeah. I haven't seen it so, for years. So yeah, I was I was just trying to trying to Google it. I have bad reception right now. But more recently, what is the what's the project? The Adam Project. Touch time travel. That was just on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. But so many of those movies take their cues from Back to the Future, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, we've done three time travel movies in this podcast. I was actually thinking about it. Like our last few episodes, we've done Arrival, we've done Terminator, and now we're doing Back to the Future. Like it's very much like you know baked into like. A subject I'm interested in, which is probably why we keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. But again, this is foundational to understanding all those movies. So I know you love lists, Rob. If this is the best time travel movie of all time, like what's your like top three time travel movies? I love this question. I mean, I would say this is number one. I think number two is like the Terminator films, even though they're not... <laughs> It's tricky because those aren't like time travely movies, right? Like they're mm-hmm. they're more movies of like where time is affected, and so there's that. But I think there's this. I do think 
the Avengers Endgame movie is a really smart time travel movie. I agree. Where they're using all those different timelines and they're doing it to like bring this whole universe together. And so I think that's the best one in the last 20 years. One of the things I think that it does as far as like stakes, it doesn't reset anything. It like sets up the rules so that everything that happened happened and you that you can't undo the snap and like tony has had a kid so we can't erase five years of time right you have to keep going forward even if you're going to use time travel so they introduce new stakes in order to make the thing that the time travel is trying to fix still matter which i think is so difficult to do and i think back to the future does that really well too in the the fact that like the stakes they set up with him trying to get his parents together well he can just stay there as long as he needs to to get them together whatever but it creates a clock of the lightning bolt it's the only time that they know that this lightning is going to happen to get him back into his actual timeline so now there's like stakes again they put parameters around the time travel that are so specific that it keeps the thing on rails and it keeps your stakes really really high i have a couple of random questions um is Back to the Future the best title ever or the worst title ever? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, John? Well, I don't know. I would categorize it as either one of those two, but I would say it's a great title. I don't know that it's the best one ever. I think it's a great title because it makes you stop and say, what? Yeah, and- I know as a kid, I was like, what? That's so dumb. They're not going to the future. They're going to the past. This movie has a stupid title. I know I thought it was dumb as a kid. My kids have both asked me. They were like, Hey, why is this not called Back to the Past? Like, he goes back to the past. Like, like, he's not going to the future. But it has, you know, one of the great line deliveries of Doc saying, oh. Marty, we have to get you back to the future. I mean, that's like, that'll yeah, be that on is his the, Yeah, that's the title forever. line. Yeah. He, he almost looks straight down the barrel when he says it, too, and somehow it works. Okay, I have another question, which is, would this movie work today? Like, let, even though this is one of those movies that I think should never be remade, let's say it could be remade really well. Would it still work, though, mechanically of someone from 2022 going back to 1992? Like, does that work? Or is the 85 to 55 the key to what makes that movie work? It's an interesting question. I was thinking about that now, and I think we don't. Part of what makes this movie work is going back to a time that we found idyllic, which is the 50s. Um. I don't think we particularly think of the mid '90s as idyllic. I we think, think we of, think, we of, think the, of the mid '90s as Green Day. Yeah, I much. think I think we think of the '80s as like mid '80s as idyllic, which is why we have so much '80s nostalgia right now, Stranger Things, etc. So I think if we had re- rebooted it in like 2013, um, maybe because there would have been this interesting cultural shift. But I think there's an interesting level of kind of like depression both in now and mid 90s that wouldn't necessarily translate the same but, way. but okay so i agreed on that maybe that point andrew but i would say you could i think it would work now again lots of qualifiers of <laughs> uh, uh of michael j fox and and the all the players in the time and all that but i do think the to your point the 80s were so idyllic i think you could go 2022 40 years back to the 80s, and I think it would work. I think that would be a really interesting, really actually really fun because I think there's technology has come so far so fast since the 80s that like my kids literally can't believe that smartphones didn't always exist. And they certainly don't believe there there was ever not an internet. And so 
Oh, right. <laughs> or that there were ever yeah. phones that were attached to houses. I was thinking about all the things like no one has two TVs or um, <laughs> Ronald Reagan is the president, the actor. Oh, well, of course he is because he has to appear on TV. There's like so many parallels to now. Like in the 90s, someone had been like, hey, that Donald Trump guy, he's going to be president. Would have been like, no, that's that's a fantasy. Like that was the same thing for people in the 50s thinking about Ronald Reagan, probably. Absolutely. Um, so there's, there's a lot of really interesting temporal parallels with like technology and the way that culture plays out that I, I was thinking about while while watching it this time around. Yeah, I think it is interesting that I could see, you know, people having to memorize each other's phone number or trying to use a rotary phone or the fact yeah. that like, oh, you had to like look up someone's number in the phone book or just all these different things of like or oh, you got to watch whatever's on and whatever's on channel 13. Like that's what we're watching tonight. And just these little kind of fun things that I could see really like shocking, you know, a kid who yeah. goes back today. But so I like, do you think you're computer right. in your pocket. It's like, no, no one can fit a computer in their pocket. It would, it, yeah. If it was done well, it could be it could be really cool. So, Rob, question for you. Let's talk about Michael J. Fox. Did did this movie make Michael J. Fox and would this movie have worked without Michael J. Fox? So one thing that's really interesting that you may or may not know, you can look at the IMDb trivia, but Eric Stoltz was actually cast first as Marty McFly. He's like the drug dealer in Pulp Fiction. He's in this movie called Mask. Uh, he's in some kind of wonderful, but actually this movie called Mask is what like the performance was there that producer in the studio thought, oh, this is, guy is so wonderful. He's it. He's the next big actor. And so he was cast in it. And they had him for the first month. Now, they wanted to cast Michael J. Fox, but there was a show called Family Ties. Do you remember Family Ties, John? Absolutely. Do I remember Family Ties? Have I ever had dinner in the 80s? Yes, I remember Family Ties. <laughs> for viewers who don't know or listeners who don't know, what was Family Ties? What was Family Ties? Family Ties was the ultimate family sitcom in the 80s when how long did it run i think i know all during the 80s through the um, whole 80s yeah i through, think into the 80s is all of the 80s it was the get your tv dinner and watch this sitcom it was the epitome of family sitcoms it was like the mother of all family sitcoms from the 80s that is what made michael j fox and i think what made him a movie star was this movie right and so like what steve carell was to the office michael j fox was to family ties like right. he just tied that whole show together and so the studio was like you cannot have michael j fox can't have him and so they shot for a whole month with eric stoltz and he played it super serious he was like a goth depressed marty mcfly he looked really like everything was just heavy and sad and they're like hey this is kind of a fun light-hearted comedy right. and he's like Marty would not find this fun and lighthearted. He's trapped in the past. He's totally isolated from everyone. So he played it really like heavy, like a dramatic actor. And finally, after a month, they're like, okay, this isn't working. Eric Stoltz was fired and they went back and they reshot the whole thing with Michael J. Fox. And they would actually have him go. He would sleep in a truck between the set of Family Ties and Back to the Future. He'd fall asleep in a moving truck that they had for him. And then he'd film all that night and then they'd drive him back and he'd film Family Ties all day. And this guy's what? performance. I had, no, yeah, this, I had no idea that this even happened. Yeah, have you heard this story? I knew the Eric Stoltz thing. I hadn't heard this bit about him like having to sleep in, in transit. That is, that's insanity. Google it. There's all these articles on it. It's this kind of crazy production schedule that nearly burnt him out and drove him crazy. But he did it, and Spielberg, because he was Steven Spielberg, just made it happen, called the Family Ties showrunner, said, 
we've got a Michael J. Fox. What do we have to do? And he's like, well, you can have him at night. And so, and Spielberg's like, okay, will you do this, Michael J. Fox? We need you for this movie. And it was his chance to become a movie star. So he's like, I'll go for it. So he would film all night and then they would shoot family ties in the day. And that's literally what they did. And this movie does not work without Michael J. Fox, in my opinion. He is the glue that makes this thing work. No question. No question about it. I'm... I'm fascinated, though, because there's so many exterior scenes in this movie that are during the day. So, like... So they would film those during the weekend. That You know, a, a show sure. was like a Monday through Friday. So oh they'd film God. at night, and then the weekend they're filming out in the fil- valley. But everything else is like on a set or something like that. But the skateboard scenes, that sure. sort of stuff. So he literally almost went crazy filming this wow. movie. That's amazing. Because he did not sleep. But then it becomes, you know, it's the movie that makes him a movie star. Yeah. In fact, every single person in this movie... This is their apex. Look up Leah Thompson. Look up Crispin Glover. Look up Christopher Lloyd. All of them, the first line on their Wikipedia page. I'm not looking at it, but I can bet you money. It's like this person was in Back to the Future. Like that's what yeah. they're known for. Every single person in this film. That is wild. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, what a what a story for Michael J. Fox. I mean, what a start. I had no idea that 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 he wasn't cast. And then he he was brought in and worked weekends and nights to make it happen. That's amazing. Yeah, and it just shows you like how one little thing can make a movie go wrong. Like part of people ask like why are there so many bad movies? It's because it's so hard to make a good one. Like this thing comes out with Eric Stoltz and it just kind of like falls apart. I think the other thing, even to your Lorraine point earlier, Andrew, was like this movie's coming out in the time of like Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds and like all these kind of teen sex comedies are in the yeah. 80s. And like that's the backdrop for this. And this movie like elevates above it. They tried to like tap into some of that. But I think Zemeckis was like, no, this is like a personal heartfelt story to me. The way sure. this story was written was Bob Gale looked at his dad in the high school yearbook and he was like, oh, wow, my dad was a teenager. And it like he had this epiphany, this dramatic moment where he's like, I wonder what my teenage dad like thought and felt. And that's when hmm. he started writing the script. And that's oh, what that's this movie's so cool. rooted in. But again, like it, if it's with Eric Stoltz, if, you know, all these different things go wrong, like it just doesn't come off. Yeah, that's such a fascinating story of how the screenwriter got the idea. Like it makes you want to like, I remember when like you're a kid and you see you're like, parents like family photos and stuff you're always like Bleh, i don't care but like thinking about this now in the context of this i'm like man like that'd be so fascinating to like flip through like my dad's yearbook you know and what are all those life experiences that i'm now long past that he had you know like what what, what is that it's really cool okay so do you guys have a most meaningful character is there a character who really jumps out to you john who's your most meaningful character i'm gonna say doc is my most meaningful character i think without him just like without Michael J. Fox, the movie falls apart. He's the glue. I think Doc is maybe also the glue or gluier or as glueish as Michael uh, Michael J. Fox. All uh, gluish. Uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So no, Doc. I and I One think I, I think I think to, we talked about it earlier, but his his character arc it was is so rewarding. I think he is sort of that impact character that makes it all happen. If it wasn't for him, there'd be no future to go back to uh, kind of an idea. The, the whole plot line wouldn't work. So I feel like his, his impact character was was so important to Marty's uh, coming into this story and accepting. He's, I guess he's kind of the Gandalf in a sense of this movie. And like Gandalf or Obi-Wan Kenobi, he dies, right? Like, And what's interesting is not at the end of the second act, but the end of the first act That's right. is Doc mm-hmm. being shot to death and dying. Yeah. Which, and is, me, which is super dark, by the way. Is. The movie oh. is so light. You think to yourself, it's, what? 
even even like the terrorist chase is like super goofy, but like he gets mowed down with a machine gun like in the middle of uh, yeah, it. And you, I mean, right. I remember seeing it for the first time. You just are kind of like drop your popcorn and you think, wait a minute, because you they paint him as the as a central character because of the opening montage. So you know that Doc is critical to the story. You know that it's yeah. partially about him, and that's I mean, kind of. Movie 101 is your opening sequence is going to give you backstory on your protagonist. So you sort of almost think Doc's the protagonist and then he's wiped out. And and then how is he going to come back into the story is fascinating and telling. And Well, and I, th- I think it's a good, most meaningful character, John, because he gives the movie gravity, right? Like there's Marty disappearing. But then it, what gives movie gravity is Doc saying things like to think that I'm going to live one day to see myself successfully time travel. And Marty knows you're never going to happen. You're going to die outside a car in the mall parking lot yeah. because of what we went through. Like, That's right. And even that scene where he's writing the letter to Doc and then Doc tears it apart and then he has to leave. Oh. Like that whole scene is powerful, yes. bro. It's amazing. I, I think the interplay there between Doc and Marty, in some ways it's kind of a buddy story, you know, almost, but it's powerful. So, yeah, I think Doc's character is is maybe one of the most meaningful characters in the movie. Andrew, what about you? That's just so fascinating to me. The gravity that he provides to the story when he's probably the most like rubber faced comic in the thing. Like he's almost in a different movie with how kind of outlandish his performance is. And so the fact that that's the character that gives it gravity is just a magic trick. You know what I'm saying? It is. Because he's kind of a character. He is. He's like a caricature. He's like a he's like a Beetlejuice almost. He's like this crazy character. But yet he adds this incredible weight. Which makes it even more unthinkable that Eric Stoltz was trying to make this like a serious movie because you're right, Rob, everyone in this movie outside of really Marty is fairly one note. I think Doc is the most caricature because he's like the most cartoony, but like everyone is a bit of a cartoon. So oh, yeah. trying to be a Marty in the center of that, that's like really like tortured over like what's going on with him right now uh, would, I mean, that would that would just be just uh, weird. Like it would just not work like. Yeah, Michael J. Fox is very human and probably the least cartoonish of everyone, but like he still is in the same world with them. Like it still works. He he really is doing a great job. Um, do you have a character, Andrew? Most meaningful character? Oh, what that question? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say George for me is uh, the most meaningful meaningful character. I think it's just because he arcs. He has to like learn how to like get over his fears, uh, be strong in the face of adversity, which is a pretty classic arc. But it's fun to see him sort of go on that journey and figure out how to how to stand up and punch a bully in the face. So really, it's George's story, right? I mean, it's about George, is, right. isn't uh, it? Uh, well, I think it's Marty's story, but it's <sighs> George is the one with the most dramatic character arc. But I still think it's Marty's story as a protagonist, like Rob was saying, is he has to exist in this world that is humanizing his parents. So it's still definitely his story, but... It's like Paddington, right? He's he's the character. Yeah, he's the character that comes in and affects everyone else's life. It's definitely his story, but maybe other characters arc a little bit more than he does. I I, I see that. Okay, John, you want to give us thirty seconds on George McFly, the the scene with him and Biff, and why you love that scene? Well, I mean, I just think that scene in the car is a meaningful scene because, like, if it would have gone the way that Marty had planned, where where George would have come out and hit Marty, it wouldn't have felt authentic. It wouldn't have been real. Once again, the characters would have 
become who they are based on a lie. It's sort of like the Peeping Tom situation where it's based on this false- Right, this, it's fabricated. This, this fabricated this, or at least a, a bad foundation like of the relationship. But instead, because Marty was taken out and Biff was in the car and, and also- to be honest, like Biff is impossible. Obviously, a setup punch, like so what? But this, but Biff, I was even thinking, well, I don't know if he's gonna get if he can make this happen. And so it makes it so much more rewarding. It makes it real. And I don't think you'd have the magic spell work if it wasn't Biff. So you have to have that scene. Yeah, if there's one clip from this movie that like makes the montage, it's George's face going from completely terrified to I have to stand up for Lorraine, and then yeah. he kind of clenches the fist, and the music changes. It is the goosebump moment of this movie. It is. Absolutely. And I was talking earlier about like Lorraine being maybe like a problematic male fantasy. I think this is a great male fantasy of like being strong enough to like defend the person you love. I think it's maybe a little cheesy in the way it's shot, but it's still it's goosebumps because of that. It's this fantastic cinema moment. Okay, so this is it. Kind of landing the plane. What is the meaning of the movie? Andrew, what's your meaning of this movie? I think the meaning of this movie has to do with making choices that define your future. Um, that's how I went into this movie. And having having heard you talk about it, Rob, now, I really like your take. And I think it brings so much more meaning to it about humanizing your parents. Um, and if anyone were ever to ask me this question again, I'd probably steal everything that you've said during this podcast. <laughs> but while I, I'm just being honest. Um, but I think for me, as I was watching it, I was thinking about the idea of like one decision can change your whole life. And that's right. kind of what, the, what they're positing here is like one punch, right? Like at the beginning, it's like getting hit by the car, set their whole life on this course. It ended up being kind of lame and boring and not good for anybody. Um, whereas punching Biff in the face showed him that he could be strong and it totally altered the course of his life. It's one decision can change everything for your life for the better. I think it also says one decision can like totally ruin your life, which is a weird kind of theme of this idea of maybe like fate or like if you take the wrong step, then you're stuck on the wrong course forever. I think that's like kind of strange when really life is a series of decisions that build towards your life. But really it is this idea that you can have a meaningful impact on your own life by stepping into it and punching your problems in the face. John, what about you? Meaning of the movie? Well, I, I think, uh, and I, I, I mean, hats off to both of your interpretations of this. I mean, Andrew, I agree with that. The moment makes a difference. Rob, I think it really is an incredible uh, um, storytelling mechanism to talk about parenting. I think part of what I gather from this movie is just simply the line, you've got what it takes. So I think that George had what it took all along. He just had to get to it. I think hmm. Doc, you know, had what it took, but he had lost so much in his house and in his own self-confidence maybe. And he just needed that little push over the edge. And I think even for Marty, like he had what it took to figure out how to reconcile with his dad and maybe become the person that he's going to be. So I think deep down is you have what it takes. And I think the narrative in life is you don't or that you're you're always going to be less than or you're never going to become all that you can be. Not to say that We'll all be something amazing, but we can be the best version of us. Good answers, fellas. Um, my meaning of the movie I gave earlier, but one thing that will always be meaningful about this movie to me is I showed it to my little brother in the 80s. He was like three years old, maybe three and a half. <laughs> and so I showed it to him. My parents were out of town and I just showed it to him. And we went to church the next day. And this like sweet old lady comes and is like, well, hey, Sean, don't you look cute? And she put her hand on his head and he looks at her and he's like, 
hey, you, get your damn hands off me. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. No way. That really happened? This is a true story, and (laughs) and I was eight years old or whatever I was, and I was just barely laughing there, and we all got in big trouble, but my brother was and still is my hero because of that. That's incredible. That's the best part of the podcast right there. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, now we need to have uh, Sean Stennett on here uh, as a guest. Yeah, Sean, you need to come do an episode. Uh, we'll do one soon. But Andrew, John, great job today. Thanks for sharing all your thoughts. Thanks for journeying with me back to the future to talk Ooh, about this yeah. film. For those of you who are new here, or for those of who have been listening for a little while now, please remember to rate, review, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. It really helps other people find the podcast. Everyone else, we'll see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.